This edition of Steve Adubato Uncut, the podcast, has been made possible by Valley Bank, Rutgers University, Newark, and Holy Name Medical Center. We're now joined by uh, Joel Finkelstein, who is co-founder and director of the Network Contagion Research Institute. Joel, good to have you with us. Thanks, Steve. It's good to be here. Tell everyone what the Institute is and why it matters so much. Well, the Network Contagion Research Institute uses machine learning and big data approaches, almost like a telescope, to try and resolve emerging threats to democracy that are coming out of social media and, and uh, festering as kind of you know, extremist and disinformation threats you know, within our democracy, both in the virtual and real worlds. And so our goal is to really cast a floodlight of transparency on that and contextualize these trends that are so important for our democracy, for lawmakers, for the media, for public mm. institutions, um, and, and just as a kind of the people's intelligence agency, as it were. So as, as we put up on the lower third our, our series, Democracy at a Crossroads, I'm going to ask you about January 6th and what the data that you and your colleagues found that made January 6th not that shocking at all. Yeah, well, I have to say, I think many in the field, and we're included there, could tell that, that, that January the 6th could well be the next Charlottesville or worse. Um, that was an assessment shared by many people in the field. Now, I think that how this happened is it's really important for people to understand how an event like January the 6th unfolded. You had for, you know, for literally for, for almost several years in advance, you had black box algorithms from groups like Twitter. You know, back in June, we notified Twitter that, that, that this group QAnon was growing on their platform, speaking to executive leadership there using our big data approaches to resolve this, the coded language and the conspiracies that were growing on the network, doubling within the month we'd studied it. And we said in that report, listen, this is turning into a revolutionary threat. They have an apocalyptic myth that's taking aim directly at law enforcement officials and, and lawmakers. They're arguing they're going to put those lawmakers in jail or harm them or worse. And they have an all-at-once go signal. Right? This, is, this, is, this is going to happen. This is likely something that's in the cards. So back in June, this is something we were warning the leadership of Twitter about, reporting to the Department of Homeland Security on, speaking to the Congress about. And so by the time the events of January the 6th happened, what we'd seen is that this wasn't an accident. This was something that had been in the works for literally a year or more, right? The conspiracy that set this off was the idea that they were going to march into the Capitol to put lawmakers in Guantanamo Bay to arrest a pedophile ring, right? All of this had been put in the cards, you know, months and months in advance. And they had practiced, you know, coded communication with the president to create a kind of- uh, For example, Joel, for example, coded communication with the president. What does that mean? You mean pre then President Trump? Yeah. So at that point, what we had back in June and, and, and far afterwards was that the, the White House Twitter feed was creating a coded, rapid, interactive network-to-network -network communication with these conspiracy groups where they would put forward populist conspiracies just beneath the surface of those populist conspiracies were dark and, and sinister implications. And the president would pick some of these populist code words and all of these nasty conspiracies would come along for the ride. So it's like a super spreader event where the White House Twitter feed would pick out a, a code word that QAnon networks would generate. And then the selection of the code word created a kind of huge celebration amongst the QAnon networks within the media. So this is a this is a way of creating a coded language, an internal an internal wink and a nod, literally between the and president. We, 
I'm sorry for interrupting, but social media played a role in this. You're saying President, then President Trump played a role. The leaders of this organization, QAnon, played a role. What about us in the so-called mainstream media? Well, I mean, I think that that this is a huge issue. That the it, the it, the information ecosystem is very favorable to disinformation because it's sensational. I mean, Twitter was making a lot of money off of QAnon. They were monetizing this in a way that allowed them to to pull in more advertising. Well, what responsibility? Excuse me for interrupting. Then, what responsibility does Twitter have or other social media platforms that are quote making money off of not just hateful disinformation, but more importantly? Dangerous misinformation. Well, I think I think you're you know going back to your your original question, Steve. You said, "What can we learn from January the sixth? Yep. Well, Twitter isn't alone in monetizing apocalyptic militia cults. Facebook did the same thing with the Boogaloo. It's fair to say that these platforms. It's not that extremist threats organize on them. It's that they organize extremist threats to our democracy. They're allowed to do that and decide who who stays on and who stays off until those threats emerge on the doorstep of our nation's capital and murder people. Then they decide who to censor. If they're the ones making the decisions about which threats to monetize, if they're the ones making the decisions about which threats to censor, then at the end of the day, what we learned from January the 6th is that the platforms won that revolution. They're becoming sovereign. They're becoming ungovernable. And, and, they, and these black box algorithms are essentially, you know, outgassing this kind of extremism and disinformation into our democracy. But Joel, it's such a, a, a scary, negative, uh, dark picture you create. My only question is, what can and should be done to not fix, we don't fix, but deal and confront this situation as best we can? So we're calling for new modes of transparency. The approaches that we that that the NCRI and others use can create a floodlight of transparency on these threats long before they emerge. And these threats, they're they're targeting law enforcement officials, they're targeting lawmakers, they're targeting the people who implement our democracy, right? So those people have a right to know they're being threatened. And in terms of the protections we're offering these platforms, we should be asking ourselves. If we're protecting the platforms, how are they deserving that protection in protecting us? Right? We need to make this a negotiation. We need to break the black boxes that are hiding our ability to have transparency on the threats that are affecting everybody. And no single person should have the right to monetize those threats on our behalf. Got about a minute left. The connection between your organization and the Eagleton Institute and our friends down there with the director, John Farmer, who they've been actually sharing uh, information with us and and suggesting people like you join us. What's the connection to my alma mater at the Eagleton Institute at Rutgers? Well, I have to say, you know, we work very closely now in partnership with the Critical Intelligence Studies Program at Rutgers and through the Eagleton Institute. And this has been absolutely transformative for our work. We have students from Rutgers who are actually in the Network Contagion Lab, which is partnered with Rutgers, who are providing us, who we are training with our tools, who provide mm. us critical intelligence. You know, there are these students in many ways are our front line um, and into, into these problems. A few, few seconds, so, Joel, a few seconds, go ahead. Just, you know, there's, you have social media savvy, you know, students who are really fighting for their democracy instead of being, you know, instead of being subject to, to a pasture that someone else is having them graze on. Being passive, a status quo approach will not work here, correct? That's right. The, you know, the, the, the last, last point, Steve, that, you know, the, the rudest myth that has occurred because of our relationship with these platforms is human obsolescence. They want us to believe we're obsolete. That is the cruelest lie, and it's never been more false 
We're, we've never been needed more than now. That's the problem. You know, I've said this for years, and my, my staff sometimes laugh when I say, uh, laughs when I say democracy is not a spectator sport. It has never been more true than given the conversation we just had with Joel Finkelstein. Joel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steve. Pleasure. I'm Steve Adubato. Thank you so much. And remember that it is not a spectator sport. We're talking democracy. See you next time. Valley's all about making life easier for clients. And that's why we're all about smiles, too. So every day, we make it possible for home buyers to become homeowners, for folks chasing their dreams to become entrepreneurs, for parents to plan today for their children's tomorrow, and for communities to get better every day. You see, when we know we've put a smile on a customer's face, well, that puts one on ours, too.